Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 336. The end is the beginning is the end. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Aaron, Callum, and Anne for signing up already. Christmas is old. Older than Christianity, in fact. And as a consequence, there's a lot to it. Symbols and traditions that come from all over the world and from all across time. It's a complex event that, predictably, can provoke a complex set of emotions from people. But when you look past the trees and the logs and the stockings and the manger and that guy in red and those scary monsters punishing kids and all the other things that have been added into it, when you boil it down to its essence, what you find at that ancient root of the holiday is a very simple and clear root. It's a winter feast. And like any good feast, we don't just eat and drink. We celebrate our lives, and we celebrate each other. And if you're lucky enough to be able to celebrate and feast with the people you love, I'm sure you understand why midwinter celebrations are so central to cultures that have long winters. You probably also understand why Canute and his forces took a break from their looting and pillaging. It wasn't just that it was cold out there. It was time to engage in holiday merrymaking. It was time to partake in beloved traditions that Canute and his followers had probably practiced since they were children. And we're told that they stopped to spend this festive season somewhere in Wessex. Which, let's be honest, can be a pretty nice place to spend a winter vacation. And so Canute hung with his squad. And they ate, and they drank, and they did all the things you tend to do during this time of year. And I'm quite certain that in this occasion, their feasts were provided, one way or another, by the English. And these provisions would have been substantial, since, based upon the reporting in the Chronicle and the size of Scandinavian ships, Canute's army might have numbered at around 10,000 warriors. And that is just the Danes. Recently, they've been joined by 40 ships of Englishmen, who were led by the recent turncoat Edric Strayona. And not only did this swell the festivities by thousands of hungry soldiers, it also made the feasting a diplomatic necessity. See, feasting was the tool for building and reinforcing political and social bonds during this era. So these feasts were likely gargantuan, and the food and booze at them had to keep flowing, which meant that some people were gonna have to go hungry in order to make sure that this conquering army was well provisioned. And my guess is that it was the West Saxon peasantry who did. Not that that likely bothered Edric all that much. I mean, this was Edric Strayona, and ripping off the English was kind of what he did. And as for these days, well, Athelred was old and sick and weak, and Canute wasn't. And so... Here he was, with the man who was in the best position to keep Strayona in a steady stream of other people's stuff. And so in all likelihood, these feasts would have seen Edric hanging out with Canute in the feasting hall, and eating stolen food, and drinking looted alcohol, and being regaled with stories of all the towns that they pillaged, and of course, hearing their dreams of future adventures, where they'd steal even more stuff. You know, Christmas. 
But while the festivities of winter are great for forming bonds, they also meant that the army wasn't doing much else. And it's quite likely in this quiet time that Edric had a suggestion for where they should go next. You see, there was a wealthy region on the border of Edric's own lands, and it was held by one of his rivals. And the fact was that while Edric had brought 40 ships of soldiers with him, and the fealty of whatever portion of Mercia he had sway over, he hadn't brought all of Mercia with him. There were still some who remained loyal to the king. And crushing those forces, such as the forces in this territory he was suggesting, would give Edric a chance to expand his influence in the region. And of course, Canute for his part, was all too happy to exploit any rifts in English society that he could find. So at around New Year's of 1016, Canute readied his men and prepared for another invasion. On the usurping king's command, the approximately 200 ships of his Viking fleet, which included 40 of Edric's ships, crossed the Thames and moved on the border region between Mercia and Wessex. And they began their campaign at Cricklade. Once there, Edric and Canute's combined forces killed anyone they found in the open and they burned buildings, and they plundered anything of value. According to the record, this campaign was brutal and savage, and it was likely done this way for a purpose. Like with previous campaigns that we've seen, the goal here was probably to demonstrate the weakness of the establishment and the strength of this insurgent campaign. It was vicious, but it was also highly visible and almost certainly meant as a demonstration to the population that said King Athelred does nothing for you. He can't even protect you from us. So it's time to switch sides. But there was another reason they probably went there. You see, the fleet that was sailing up the Thames would have had countless options for sites to disembark, and plenty of places where they could have made the same message. The Thames is connected to a vast network of tributaries and waterways, so they really could have gone just about anywhere in the south. But they went to Cricklade. And I think it's notable that Cricklade was less than a day's march from Chippenham, the royal estate where Alfred the Great had lost the throne. It was at Chippenham where Guthrum had managed to take Alfred by surprise, possibly with the help of some turncoats. And here, in 1016, we have Canute launching a new campaign, and with him was the support of Athelred's chief counselor, as well as dozens upon dozens of English ships. And he did it just down the way from Chippenham. It could have been a coincidence, but if you wanted to send a message, there were worse ways to do it. There's also the fact that by eliminating the last vestiges of resistance in the south, Canute and Edric were making it much more difficult for Athelred to counter the advancing conquest. The king, who was now hiding in London, would be incredibly hard to root out. London's walls were thick and well defended. But if London stood alone in the south, the king would have very few places left to run. For the most part, he'd just have Normandy, and he'd have to run there just like he did a few years earlier. So Canute, like Guthrum, wasn't just taking a border town here. He was cutting off the king's legs. And he was demonstrating to all of England that Canute, not Athelred, was in command of the kingdom. The echoes of Chippenham here are substantial. 
But then again, things had changed since Alfred's loss at Chippenham. In the decades that followed that event, Alfred had turned the land into a fortress. The kingdom, especially in the south, was dotted with burrs that were manned by Ferdsmen. And their entire purpose for being was to respond to threats just like this. They were even able to communicate with each other rapidly in case of an attack by using a system of beacons. Yeah, exactly like Lord of the Rings. And perhaps that system was still functioning during the early 11th century, because it wasn't long at all before a message reached Prince Edmund, the king of the five boroughs, and it told him of these Viking attacks. Now Edmund, like his late brother Athelstan, took his role as a commander and defender of the kingdom very seriously. So once again, he called the Ferd and prepared for war. England wasn't lost yet. Canute may have captured the south, but he hadn't taken all of Mercia, nor had he taken the territories of the old Danelaw. So Edmund's peasant army was called, and war bands began to arrive, and the army grew. But as Edmund gathered his men, Canute and Edric moved on. This time, they went to Warwickshire, the territory of another of Edric's rivals, an elderman named Leofwena. Once there, they again set about pillaging and burning. And the fact that these were English towns doesn't seem to have bothered Edric one bit. So the devastation continued. But finally, there was some good news for the English. The men of Warwickshire had answered Edmund's call, along with whatever soldiers that Prince Edmund, turned king of the five boroughs, had brought with him. Likely, the men of the five boroughs. And with that mustering... Edmund now had an army of sufficient size to challenge Canute and Edric. There was just one problem. King Athelred and the men of London hadn't answered the call. They were refusing to fight and were staying in the city. And that fact, at the very least, had given the appearance that Edmund, king of the five boroughs, was operating without the support of Warwickshire's king, King Athelred of England. And that was bad enough. But add to the fact that the English Ferd had really been through a lot over the last few years. They'd been abandoned by their nobles more times than any of them can count. And so when King Athelred and the forces of London failed to show up, well, I'm guessing this looked pretty familiar, especially given Athelred's track record. And granted, this time King Athelred had a pretty good excuse. He was deathly ill. But... Given the governance of the last several decades, it's unlikely that anyone was going to give him the benefit of the doubt here. And so the Ferd that had answered Edmund's call refused to march on Canute. And then they broke. Instead of going to war, they simply marched home. And really, can you blame them? Why risk your life just so this dude who never protected his own kingdom could stay in power? Why fight for his son when that son had propped himself up as king of the Anglo-Danish five boroughs? The Ferd had lost all trust and confidence in their leaders. And so, they were refusing to fight. And as such, the pillaging continued unabated. England's defense was beyond the breaking point. And now, large parts of England were lost. But Edmund wasn't about to give up. And this right here was when he began to earn his nickname, 
Edmund Ironsider. Edmund Ironsides. You see, Edmund wasn't going to abandon his duty, nor the kingdom. And he also wasn't going to allow anyone else to do that either. So the prince and king of the five boroughs sent out another order. And in it, he said that everyone must show up, no matter how far away they were. And if they didn't, they would suffer the full penalties of the law. And the law of this era went one of two ways. Either there'd be the payment of a full wear guild or death. So Edmund was telling them to show up or after I win this war, I'll have you killed. Or if you're very lucky, I'll just have you bankrupted. It was a strong argument. But then again, Edmund also knew that without the king's support, it wouldn't matter what sort of threats he was making. The army would show up and then just leave again as it had already done before. So he also sent out a messenger to his father, King Athelred, and he begged him to do his duty and leave the safety of his fortress city so he could come to the mustering point. Edmund also begged his father to bring the men of London, as it wasn't just the king that the Ferd wanted to see. They also wanted to see the sizable army that held the city walls. And then he waited. And waited. Then the king's banners were sighted on approach. And Edmund's relief must have been palpable. And then it must have swelled when he saw that the king was accompanied by the soldiers that had been previously withheld at London. And more than that, the king and the men of London weren't alone. The warbands of Warwickshire and elsewhere in England were also coming as ordered. And before long, England's army was assembled. And it was formidable. But King Athelred was a deeply insecure king. And more than that, he was paranoid. The St. Bryce's Day Massacre had been the result of the king's long-standing fear that he would be betrayed by forces within his own kingdom. And I'm sure it hadn't helped that Edric Strayona, along with much of Wessex, had joined Canute. Furthermore, you have the fact that Athelred had been driven into exile only a few years earlier when the kingdom as a whole had pledged itself to Canute's father, Swain Forkbeard. The point I'm getting at here is that Athelred had trust issues. And there was something about this assembly that made him nervous. Something that wasn't sitting quite right. And then some unnamed person whispered in his ear that there might be traitors in his midst. And that was all that Athelred needed to draw all of his soldiers to his side and make a hasty retreat back to the city of London. Fuck this army, fuck this battle, this kingdom. Damn it, I'm going to go where it's safe. And when he left, much of the army followed his lead. They decided to head home rather than risk it all for this country that the king and his friends had already taken so much from. And you really have to feel for Edmund here. The poor guy was desperately trying to save the kingdom and Athelred for that matter. But Athelred just couldn't stop being Athelred long enough to let himself be saved. And as a result of this god-tier level incompetence, Warwickshire continued to take a beating from Edric and Canute's forces without any serious response from the nobles who were duty-bound to protect it. And as for Edmund, the five boroughs still answered to him. And while the south was lost, and while what was left of Mercia was getting gobbled up, Northumbria still remained free. So there is hope there. But Northumbria was also a complicated territory, 
and who could say which way their allegiance would swing? On the one hand, they were part of England, but on the other, they'd only been part of England for a hot minute and they never seemed all that thrilled about it. Of course, they did have Anglo-Saxon roots that went all the way back to legendary figures like the Sons of Ida. And their elderman, Uhtred, was Edmund's brother-in-law through marriage. But following the great heathen army, many of the northern nobles now had familial and cultural links with the Danes, Canute's people. Naturally, they hated Edric Streona as he had orchestrated the assassinations of some of their nobles. But he was working for Edmund's father, King Athelred, when he did that. The North had a fierce warrior culture, but as often as not, they liked to use those skills against each other instead of against outside forces. The point is, Northumbria was a bit of a wild card. But then again, beggars can't be choosers, and without the support of his father, Edmund was unable to command the loyalty of the Southern English. So he had nowhere else he could go for help. So, this prince turned king, took his men, and he rode to Northumbria to meet with Elderman Uhtred and ask for their support in the war with Canute and that bastard Edric Strayona. And luckily for Edmund, Uhtred was up for the fight. We're not told what was promised, if anything, nor are we told of what arrangements were made, nor why Elderman Uhtred joined this self-proclaimed king of the five boroughs. But whatever motivated him, Uhtred called up the mighty army of Northumbria. And when Uhtred the Bold called, you answered. So his army immediately mustered, and they joined Edmund's forces from the five boroughs. Together, they would retake the kingdom and bring an end to this war. But they didn't go straight at Canute. Perhaps the Danish army, supported by Edric, was simply too large and swift to be dealt with directly. After all, thanks to the submission of the South, Canute's army wasn't just an army. It was cavalry. And perhaps that is why they chose a different tactic. Rather than marching on Canute, the combined forces of the old Danelaw chose instead to march on Staffordshire, and then Shrewsbury, and then Chester. They were going to lands that belonged to a certain elderman named Edric Strayona. And as they marched, the great northern army burned and looted. They ensured that Edric would suffer the only kind of attack that he seemed to care about, a direct assault on his pocketbook. Now to be clear, the records don't say specifically why Uhtred and Edmund pillaged the Midlands, but sapping the will to fight from Edric's forces, and thereby weakening Canute's army, is one possible outcome for this tactic. It's also possible that by doing this, Edmund and Uhtred had worked out a trap, and they were trying to draw the Danish army into it by attacking Edric's lands. We can't say for certain what they were up to here, but rather than rushing to the defense of Cheshire, Canute and Edric had other ideas. You see, by bringing such a large army south into Cheshire, Elderman Uhtred and Edmund of the Five Boroughs had given Canute a critical piece of information about the status of their lands. Namely, that they had lost almost all of their defenders and were now dangerously exposed. So rather than riding on Cheshire, Canute and Edric's army instead rode north, and they plundered Buckinghamshire, then Bedfordshire, then Huntingdonshire, then Northamptonshire. Then they went along the fens to Stamford 
and were now thoroughly in Edmund's territory. And there, they looted Lincolnshire and then Nottinghamshire and laid waste to Edmund's lands. They were answering his tactics in kind. But Edmund Ironside wasn't about to break. He would weather those attacks, meaning that his subjects would have to weather them. But he wasn't the only noble who was leading this army. And Canute and Edric weren't simply attacking Edmund's lands. Did he catch what else they were doing? Think back to the shires they were striking and the order in which they were striking them. They were moving north. And once they were done with Nottinghamshire, they crossed into Northumbria proper and advanced rapidly on its beating heart. York. They were going into Elderman Uhtred's lands and to the source of much of his wealth and power. Oh, f**k. Moving on York meant that many of Uhtred's fighters' families, and possibly even Uhtred's family, were now in danger. After all, given the nature of the campaign, it's unlikely that they brought their families with them. Far better that they should stay safe in one of the fortified locations in the north. Only now those fortified locations weren't safe. Canute had done what he was best at. He had spotted a rift in English society and exploited it. As soon as word reached the English army of what the Danes were up to, Uhtred and the men of the north abandoned Edmund's army and rode hard for home. He and all of Northumbria immediately submitted to Canute and proclaimed him king. They then provided hostages to their new liege as a guarantee of their loyalty. As of this moment, Canute held command of almost all of England. Only a small pocket of resistance remained. But then again, many rulers have fallen prey to what was, initially, just a small pocket of resistance. And the problem with seizing England was that this was a kingdom that had become famous for betrayal and backstabbing. So Canute needed to be careful. So Canute needed to be careful with these new lands he'd acquired. And Edric Strayona was only too happy to encourage Canute's suspicion of his new elderman, Uhtred. After all, Uhtred had just been pillaging Edric's lands only a few weeks earlier. Furthermore, the task of turning Canute against Uhtred probably wasn't all that difficult. He commanded the largest territory in England and he'd only just recently been fighting alongside Edmund Ironsides. Furthermore, this was Northumbria, and Northumbria being Northumbria meant that there were plenty of northern lords who would love to throw Uhtred under the bus. This was a region that was never short on blood feuds, and now that Uhtred was in a weakened position, well now that was something that could be exploited by nobles like Thurband the Hold. So Canute summoned Uhtred to a meeting. And being that he couldn't turn down his liege, the northern lord responded. But possibly recognizing the danger that he was in, he also brought a retinue with him of at least 40 men. But it turned out that wouldn't be enough. Uhtred and 40 of his companions were then cut down by Thurbrand and his companions, all under the auspices of King Canute. And according to the Chronicle, this was done at the advice of one Edric Strayona. And if there wasn't already a blood feud between Uhtred and Thurbrand's dynasties, definitely was one now. And it would last for generations. In fact, this feud was so vicious that members of these two families would still be killing each other after the Norman conquest. 
So Northumbria was back to business as usual. But even though Canute had Uhtred killed, he did allow Uhtred's dynasty to remain in power because Bernicia was granted to his brother, Aedwulf. However, not everything would stay the same. Northumbria, which had only been recently united, would no longer be allowed to continue. Instead, it would be split up again, with Aedwulf ruling the northern portion, and the southern portion of Yorkshire wouldn't go to someone from the dynasty of Uhtred. Instead, it would now be governed by Canute's trusted advisor that he had brought with him from Denmark. Eric Lathier would now be the Earl of York. So Canute wasn't just being proclaimed king at this point. He was also now handing out titles as a king. There's just one small problem with that, though. He wasn't the only king in England. So he readied his men, and he prepared for their voyage south, where he intended to bring this campaign to its inevitable conclusion. Meanwhile, far to the south in London was King Athelred and the forces of the city of London. But Athelred wasn't alone. Following the disaster of Uhtred's submission, Edmund had brought what soldiers had remained under his control with him to the city, and they consolidated their forces. It was really the only move he had left. But ultimately, it really wouldn't matter. Athelred's handpicked counselor had sided with the enemy and was now ravaging English lands. The nobles of Wessex, Mercia, and Northumbria had all claimed this Viking prince as their king. And more than that, Athelred was sick. Far too sick to find a way out of this predicament. And it's here, in 1016, that we reach the end of Athelred Unred. But the end of this king isn't so much the end of the age of Athelred as it is the end of the age of Alfred. See, Alfred, Athelred's great-great-grandfather, had laid down a foundation for his kingdom that allowed his dynasty to hold exclusive dominion over Wessex, and later England. And he didn't just expand royal power, bringing it in line with the Carolingian notion that kings were appointed by God. He also reorganized the military culture of the West Saxons, which later became the new military culture for the English in general. And as a result of these changes, gone were the days when the kingdom was run by nobles who were also a warrior elite, and who were indoctrinated into that culture from childhood. Starting with Alfred, the kingdom would instead be defended by the Ferd. Now this dramatically increased the military manpower that was available to the kingdom, and it made it possible for soldiers to be present across the full breadth of Wessex and later England. What Alfred had done here is turn the kingdom into a fortress. And in many ways, what he did was remarkable. But it wasn't flawless. By placing the kingdom's defense into the hands of a conscript army, suddenly, those psychopathic peacocks, which had dominated Anglo-Saxon military life for centuries, were no longer so vital. And it's not like the nobles that filled those ranks went away. They were still there. And for generations, they did lead the Ferd in battle. But at the same time, it was no longer necessary for noble families to send some of their sons to the Werod at around eight years old to be trained and indoctrinated into the warrior culture of duty and honor as they had been in the past. Because that gang-style warfare was over, and now the peasants were doing the bulk of the fighting. Now don't get me wrong here, there were a lot of problems with having a warrior elite. The pre-Alfredian days were no picnic, especially for peasants like Unferth. 
but by removing the duty of military service from the nobility. You have to wonder if the unintended consequence of that was that noble culture began to change. And gradually, they lost their sense of purpose. I suspect they also lost their training and readiness for battle, something that would have been exacerbated by the many years of peace under Athelred's father, King Edgar the Peaceable. Without a culture that said that military leadership is what we do, and without the social pressure that emphasized the importance of proper training and duty, you have to wonder if that's why, over the generations, the English nobility started to become decadent and appear even outright bored at times. It might also be why we saw something during the age of Athelred that would have been shocking just a few hundred years earlier. We had nobles who were too cowardly to fight. Nobles who faked sick just to get out of battles. And nobles who were so incompetent that when they actually did show up, their tactics resulted in disaster time and time again. And it wasn't that the English in general were just a cowardly bunch of people. The Ferd kept mustering. They were honoring their duty. It was the nobles who led the Ferds who ended up bailing time and time again and then took their fighters with them. And it's possible that this occurred because thanks to the reorganization of the military, those nobles were no longer military leaders. They weren't a warrior elite. They were aristocrats. Even worse, thanks to the years of peace and the incredible prosperity that England had been enjoying for the last several generations, they were idle aristocrats. And that very well might have been why they were so obsessed with courtly politics and backstabbing. In many ways, it appears that England had become a land ruled by wealthy dilettantes, and the seeds for that harvest may have been sown by Alfred the Great himself. Though I should point out here that unintended consequences are not destiny. At any point, these tendencies could have been corrected. We've had eight kings and countless powerful nobles and clergymen who all had the ability and power necessary to make decisions to reform their society. Furthermore, there are a ton of lesser nobles and countless unnamed people who also could have done things differently at any point. But they didn't. And not changing and not taking a stand and saying, no, this cannot continue, was a choice. And it was a choice that those in power were continually making for over a century in order to bring us to this point. This era is not the story of a single bad king or even a collection of bad nobles. This was a continuum of failure. And as such, I feel like Alfred and Athelred are bound together. And I find it fitting that their stories sit at each end of this era. Alfred had done many of the things that Athelred is lambasted for. He'd lost his kingdom to the Danes. He'd paid Danegelds. He'd robbed the church. He had conflicts with and seized lands from his own subjects. But at the same time, Alfred had led from the front. He retook his kingdom through a brilliant guerrilla campaign. His Danegelds were used to buy him time so he could win future battles. And, well... He just kind of got away with that whole thing he had for nicking church and noble lands. But as a result of his careful governance and brilliant defense of the kingdom against the Danes, Alfred was able to spend the last years of his life in relative peace, choosing to focus on the scholarly matters that he loved most. 
Athelred sits almost like a mirror universe version of Alfred the Great. He faced similar challenges and he did similar things, but he did them in all the worst ways imaginable. And as his moniker states, he really did have some terrible counsel. Edric Strayona and Elfridge of Hampshire in particular seem to be custom made to bring down the kingdom. But he could have listened to other people and he could have made other choices, but he didn't. Athelred's venal and short-sighted policies, be they the result of his counselor's machinations or his own desires, had decimated what was left of the web of loyalties and trust that the kingdom had relied upon for centuries. And it's easy just to stop there and say that Athelred was probably the worst king in history, and he was no doubt made worse by his terrible counsel. And many have made pretty much that exact statement. But by focusing just on Athelred, I think we're letting his nobles off the hook. Athelred didn't invent Edric or Elfrich. They were products of their culture, just as Athelred was. And given that they were able to operate as they did, and given how the nobles behaved in other circumstances during this era, I don't think that they were outliers by any stretch of the imagination. What was happening here was made possible by a noble culture that was rotten down to the core. And I think that we should blame them just as much as we blame Athelred. And while Kipling loved to blame Athelred for the Danegelds, and in doing so he ignored the fact that Danegelds were used by many kings, including kings that Kipling very much respected, like Alfred, even that analysis isn't deep enough. You see, the fact is that Alfred gets a lot of very good press, not just because of his victories, but also because of the innumerable ways that he changed the culture of his kingdom. Literacy, Carolingian theory, scholarship, military service, even the landscape. Alfred represented a tectonic shift in culture. But he wasn't omnipotent, and he couldn't have predicted all the ways that those changes would play out in the future. And as a result of all those decisions that he made, and all the decisions that those who followed him had also made, his great-great-grandson, King Athelred, had ruled over a kingdom that dwarfed anything that Alfred could have dreamed of, both in scope and in wealth. But it was also a kingdom that was marked by a culture of self-interest and betrayal that revealed itself at every turn. And so I think that Kipling's oft-repeated perspective on Athelred doesn't just mislead people on the timing of the Danegelds. It also causes a misunderstanding of how all of this happened and utterly mischaracterizes where Athelred's story sits in the saga of England. He wasn't an accidental pothole. No, the age of Athelred was part of the road that the kingdom had started driving down many generations earlier. And no matter who was in the driver's seat, every single time someone took over, they kept going down that same damn road. And interestingly, there is one aspect of the age of Athelred that stands in stark contrast to the culture of his court. And it also feels like it runs counter to what you'd expect from Athelred as a person. You see, Athelred was one of the most prolific legislators of the Anglo-Saxon era. We see him acting as a legislator time and time again, releasing endless numbers of law codes. And that makes me wonder if, despite his own grifting and ruthlessness, he still recognized the danger that the kingdom was in if it kept going down this road. And perhaps those law codes were efforts at course correction. But if that was the case, it was too little too late, because the England during this era had gone too far. 
The culture had metastasized, and that no doubt played a role in how Athelred met his end. Because unlike Alfred's peaceful, scholarly death, Athelred spent his final days watching his friends and allies abandon him as he became consumed by paranoia. And in the end, all but a tiny sliver of his kingdom was lost to Canute. And now, as he lay dying in London, he was on the verge of even losing that one last sliver. Canute was coming now, and he was going to take whatever meager possessions remained under Athelred's control. But before Canute, Edric, and whatever other English nobles had turned could reach London, Athelred succumbed to his illness, and he died on St. George's Day of 1016. Athelred had been king for nearly 40 years, but when he died, there was no poetic lament in the Chronicle or elsewhere. There was no heartbroken entry about the passage of such a long-standing monarch. Instead, there was just a single backhanded sentence buried in a much longer entry. Quote, He ended his days on St. George's Day, having held his kingdom in much tribulation and difficulty as long as his life continued. End quote. It was a fitting end to his reign and his life. And with his life ended, there was work to be done. The nobles of London might be surrounded and isolated, but they still had a duty, an important duty, considering that they were likely some of the only nobles left who were still loyal to the House of Wessex. They needed to pick a new king to lead them. So they proclaimed that King Edmund of the Five Boroughs would now be Edmund, King of England, and they pledged their loyalty to him. The king is dead. Long live the king. But would a new king be enough to undo all of this damage? If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter, at British Podcast, and you can find all our communities by going to the community section of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.